I did just want to make a, uh, a quick reminder. Uh, about a week ago, you would have seen something about a, a, a spiritual respite coming up, March 1st and 2nd. It's just a chance uh, to ask yourself three questions about your life with God. Uh, where am I? Uh, where am I wanting to go, and, and how am I going to get there? Um, and so if you want to be a part of that, um, just let me know via email or text or catch me this morning, and uh, we'll make sure you're on the list. If that's new news to you and you don't know anything about it, let me know. Also, make sure you get the handout with information uh, on it. I've been reading a, a book called Daily Rituals, and it's a book about the, the, the lifestyles and the habits of, of authors and painters and all sorts of creatives. Now, as you may not be surprised to hear, they were often terrible students back in the day when teachers were trying to teach them. Uh, there would often be teachers who would say that they would not focus on anything in class, and they would have to keep reminding them to get their heads out of the clouds, because they were always somewhere else rather than engaged in what was happening in the class work. And as Christians, we sometimes have this phrase, I don't know if you've heard it, saying that you're so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. And I think as we read Colossians this morning, we will come to find that Paul would never ever use that phrase, that he would only ever say, you are so heavenly minded that you are of absolutely earthly good. Because Paul connects together what we think in these ethereal realms to what is happening here on earth. And so I want to begin by essentially setting the table with our section of text. Uh, this is not a subway map. You see, this is a, a line connections as I'm trying to prove and show to you that Paul is, is beginning with something and he's ending with something. So he wants us to see this section as a group and as a unit, verses uh, 1 through verses 23. You'll see themes repeated throughout the theme of faith and of hope and of what they've heard, and of the gospel that's gone to the whole world. And so this, this strong passage in verses 15 through 20 often gets the attention, but I want us to see it's embedded within something that Paul's trying to do. And so here's how I would summarize this section. That, that what Paul is saying in verses 1 through 23 is, the gospel you received is indeed the word of truth. And then he goes on to encourage them to continue uh, securely established and steadfast in the faith. I mean, that's what's happening as Paul introduces this letter. But now I want to talk a little bit about this, these words of being established and being steadfast because we often think of this in terms of endurance sort of uh, ideas and notions. These are words that come out of kind of building world and, and specifically out of the, the foundation of the house. And so this is not the metaphor because this would be an endurance metaphor. You know, you're building the house, and, and the sun's out, and you're really hot and sweaty, and you're thinking, oh, I'm too tired to build the house. And Paul says, you know, keep up. That's not the metaphor that Paul's using. Paul is not focusing on energy and endurance. He's focusing on enduring in the foundation. So the image is more like this. You're building the house, and, and another builder comes by, and he says, hey, your foundation is off. You, there's no point in continuing to build this house because you need to go back and reevaluate the foundation. And Paul, what he is saying is, no, the foundation is fine. What, what you've heard in the gospel is true. There is no need to go back and to reevaluate the foundation. Keep going with what was first established and built in you. And so it begs the question, what might some people be saying about the foundation that Paul is seeing as a threat to the gospel. 
And I think we find clues as we look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20. But before we look at that text, I want us to take us on a little journey back through time. There was a guy who lived about 500 years before Jesus whose name was Plato. And he wrote a little story called The Allegory of the Cave. And in this story, there's these three guys who ever since birth, they were chained in a cave and they could only face against the wall. And they could not turn their heads or see anything. And as a fire was built behind them, as people would walk in front of the fire, those who were chained would see the shadows. But that's all they had ever seen, and they thought the shadows were real. Until one day, one of the guys broke out, and he got back, and he looked, and he saw that, no, the shadows weren't real. They were simply a reflection of something else. And in Plato's allegory of the cave, he goes back and tells his friends, and then they kill him. Now, what Plato is telling his story is about his worldview, how we see the world and how we view the world. And what Plato was espousing is the things that you can see and touch in front of you are not real. They are shadows or reflections of an invisible reality. And he promoted this notion that what is seen is lesser than real than what is unseen. Now Plato told this story, and time and time again, people began to say, that's a good story, I like that worldview, and they began to incorporate it in their thinking. It became fully crystallized in the first century through the fourth century in something that people now call Gnosticism, also called Neoplatonism. And it's this same notion, and it, it would have been very prevalent when Paul was writing, where essentially here's what the Gnostics do. They, they break the world into two circles. So they draw one circle and they say, here's all the physical, tangible, material things. And here's all the non-material, the invisible and the unseen things. And the Gnostics have but two stamps that can go on anything in the world. One stamp says good and one stamp says bad. So they say the things that are physical and tangible and material are bad, and the things that are non-material and invisible are um, important. They are the good things in the world. And then they, it turned into having this kind of spiritual element where they believe that the truly spiritual people, the language that the Gnostics use is those who have the fullness of knowledge, which is a very interesting word because we find it in Colossians. But those who have the fullness of knowledge are those who, if you've seen the movie Matrix, where, where the people get out of the computer system and they see it, it's the select few who see the world as it really is. And the Gnostics believe that if you can get above the physical world and you can see it from a spiritual realm, you have received this special knowledge. Now, when Paul writes to the church in Colossae, there's no way to tell for sure exactly how extensive Gnosticism is, how much people are... Um, influenced by it. But one thing we can say for sure is Gnostic thinking muddies the waters in Colossae. And Paul is very concerned about what Gnosticism, and specifically an element of Gnosticism called dualism, that what is created is bad, what is not created is good, that Paul believes that that's a threat to the Christian gospel. And here's a few spots where we can see this. This is almost a spoiler alert of sorts as we go through Colossians. But I think it's important that we get a sense of what's coming up. First of all, you have in Colossae the worship of angels. Now again, if you think about this, if something is visible, it's lesser or not good compared to that which is invisible. God is what? God is invisible. Uh, in, in Psalm 8.3, it says that God made the uh, humans just a little bit lower than the angels. So the angels are invisible. So below the angels, you must have humans who are visible. But the problem is Jesus came as a man. So when he became visible, now Jesus must be lesser than the angels. Because that which is invisible always is better than that which is visible. Then they go on to say, as they look at the created world, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch 
So those who are truly spiritual, because these things are innately bad, they're going to avoid things in the created world. He goes on to talk about the harsh treatment of the body that they subject themselves to. So all of this is this kind of Gnostic, dualistic sort of thinking. Material, bad. Immaterial, good. But this conflicts with the gospel message, doesn't it? Look at Paul's language in Colossians 1.22. He now has reconciled in his fleshly body through death. That those two words, fleshly and body, are utterly redundant. It's like saying to someone, you did a good, great job. You don't need to say both of those things. Just tell me one or the other. Or, or you were really quick and fast. You were quickly fast at that job. So Paul is emphasizing here that the work Christ did, he did in what? In a fleshly body. Which if you're Gnostic, the fact that it's a body means it must be bad. Paul goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 9, For in him, that being in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. So Paul recognizes this Gnostic mindset is threatening the foundation of the gospel because it is emphasizing moving away from created matter towards a higher spiritual plane. And Paul is saying, no, Christ did his work in the body, which means the body cannot be bad. And so he begins addressing this, as we see in the text of Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you have a sense why this Gnostic view is in contradiction with the gospel message that's being talked about here? That the material is bad? Because Paul here, first of all, he talks about Jesus as the image of the invisible God. As P.T. O'Brien says, in Christ the invisible has become visible. The, the Bible makes the point that no one has ever seen God, but when you look at Christ, you see God reflected. And the fact that when Christ became human, he did not lose his deity. His image of God means that one can also be in the flesh and simultaneously be in the image of God. And that's good news for us. Why? Because Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. So to be in the flesh does not mean we cannot be in the image of God. To, to be in the flesh doesn't mean we are now exempt from the possibility of being like God because the flesh is not bad. Christ came as the image of the invisible God. Then Paul tells us that he was the firstborn of creation. Now this language can be kind of confusing because we think of firstborn in, in the literal sense of one who is born. But there's also this use in the Bible where firstborn is, is assigned almost more metaphorically to people. It, it is assigned to people. And it indicates the importance or the supremacy or the preeminence of someone. So in Psalm chapter 89, verse 27, God said, I will make or appoint him the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. So, so we think about firstborn being something that's about birth order, where God is saying firstborn is about appointing someone and calling them 
the firstborn, which means all that is done is for their sake. It is on their behalf. And so Jesus receives the rights of one entrusted and designated as the firstborn. And as we look at the creation, we see the creation, this created world, is in him, and it is through him, and it is for him. All of creation is about Christ. And so we ask, well, what about the heavenly places? Yeah, that's in him and through him and for him. What about things invisible? Yeah, that's in him and for him and through him. What about things visible? That's in him and for him and through And what about thrones and powers and everything? Everything belongs in him and it is for him and it was made through him. And so Christ then becomes the center of all things. That's Paul's kind of concluding sentiment when he says, He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Imagine going to a class, and we're talking about atoms, and all of those sort of things, and someone says, you know what's at the very center? Something you cannot see in the microscope. It's Jesus Christ himself holding this world together. And then Paul goes on, after he's established that Christ is supreme in creation, he goes on to establish that Christ is to be supreme in this new creation, in the recreation, or in the reconciliation process. And so Paul writes that he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Now, here's again another subway image for you that hopefully you can follow. I've tried to find a good computer program that can do this, and boy, it's just so much easier to draw lines and highlight things, isn't it? But do you see that what Paul is doing is a mirror image here? You have the repeated, he is the image to he is the beginning. He is the firstborn of creation becomes he is the firstborn of the dead. For in him all things were created. Now for in him the fullness of God is pleased to, to dwell. We have through him God doing his work in both sense. For him God doing both his work and this to him God doing all. So, so, so what Paul is saying here is everything that was supposed to be is once again going to be. And what we find at the very center, I believe, is the church. He is the head of the body. His church. The church becomes the vehicle or the means by which Christ is going to go about reconciling all things. I like how Abraham Kuyper puts this. He says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Things visible or invisible. Things in heaven or things on earth, all things are to be brought back to where God intended them to be. Which this passage presupposes somewhere along the lines there has been rebellion. There has been revolt. That, that, that the world was not as God intended. That Christ was not supreme in the ways that he was to be. And that God will reconcile. To reconcile means to bring something back into its right relationship. So Christ came to pick up the pieces that have fallen apart. Pieces in heaven and on earth. Things visible and things invisible. And so Jesus, when he makes peace, he does it in the most material way possible. Through his blood on a cross. You can't get any less spiritual than that, can you? Blood 
and a cross. And that becomes the very means whereby Jesus begins this reconciliation process. And so I think Paul is outlining the gospel story that, again, is being threatened by this Gnostic thinking. First of all, all things were made for him and by him and in him. There was revolt and rebellion, and Jesus came to renew, to redeem, and to reconcile all that had been lost from his dominion. But I want us to slow down for a minute and ask how we tell the gospel story. I think this is often how we tell it. We do believe that all things were made for him and by him and in him. We believe that there was revolt and rebellion. But often in the third part of the movement, this is what we say, and Jesus came to get me out of this mess, this bad material world. Now, you may have never said that, you may have never articulated that, but if you pay attention to our language, you will find that's often what we believe the third move of the gospel is. Take, for example, this song that you may have heard. Some glad morning when this life is o'er to a home where on God's celestial, read invisible, shore, like a bird from prison bars has flown. Just a few more weary days and then all fly away. Do you think this person enjoys life on this earth in God's created good world? Imagine you built a house for someone and you went to visit them and you said, how is my house? And they said, it's like prison. I can't wait to get out. And if they said, oh, living in this house, they're just full of weary days. Just a few more and I'll get out of this broken physical world. When we, te- when we talk about death, do, do we talk about death as in the fact that our bodies were created by God, significant and special? Or do we talk about our bodies like I could just throw it in a garbage can and everything would be just fine with me? Do we value the material world that is held together by Jesus Christ? I, I think of it this way. I don't know if you remember this story in June 23rd of last year that 12 soccer players... They got stuck in a cave two miles in, and the waters rose, and there they are, 12 players, one coach, and this huge rescue effort goes. After two weeks, they figured they would just find the bodies, but lo and behold, one of the divers comes across survivors, still alive. And the message that they give is that we are going to get you out of here, right? Because that's like prison. That's, that's awful. Now the question is, is that the gospel message? Does Jesus come and say, this world is so off track, it's so off base, I'm going to get you out of here? Or does Jesus come saying, we're going to fix this? The reconciliation is of what? All things. Well, what things is that? Things in heaven and things on earth. Things visible and things invisible. Christ came to fix everything. And I think that the message of the gospel is a powerful message of all things being renewed and restored under his dominion. I mean, if we think back to verses 13, it says, He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So we're now living in this material world, but we're living in the kingdom of the beloved Son as his people and as his servants. See, Timothy Keller says, The purpose of redemption is not to escape the world, but to renew it. 
It is about the coming of God's kingdom to renew all things. And Jesus is currently through his church. That's us, isn't it? He is at work in renewing and in reconciling and returning all things to the blessed way that God had intended it. See, the gospel message is that Christ is supreme everywhere. Things invisible and things visible as well. And, and, and I do think that we still struggle with the same gravitational pull of dualism. Of saying that the material is bad and the immaterial is good. So perhaps we could consider this passage that's going to come up. Colossians 3, 1 through 2. So you have been raised with Christ. Therefore, seek the things that are above, which we often in our minds say, things that are invisible, right? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, again, on invisible things, not on things that are on the earth, material things. That's, I think, how we typically walk our way through this passage. But Paul cannot be saying that, because if he's saying that, he's contradicting what he's going to do in chapter 1 and chapter 2, which is to say, okay, here, here, let's do the, let's do the Gnostic thing, and that's our solution when he's been fighting against the Gnostic thing. Instead, I think Paul helps us along the way if we pay attention. Look at what he says in verse 5. Paul will tell us exactly what is earthly. He will say, put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. That's the earthly thing. He's not saying, you know, like the material things. That's, that's what we really have to watch out for. There are within us parts and emotions and actions that Christ has not been given first place to. And those things are earthly. And those are the things that we do not fixate on or that we do not draw ourselves into. Paul will go on to give us some, another idea of earthly. To be earthly means to get rid of all such things as anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive language from your mouth. So then what does it mean to think about things above? What are these, these above things? Well, Paul's going to give us that in verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. So I want to ask you this question. Where do you best have the opportunity to practice these things that are above? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. When I am, for lack of a better word, when I am spiritually connected to God in my time of prayers, when my mind is set on things above, I don't struggle with any of these things. You know, whenever I struggle to be patient, I'm looking at it right now, aren't I? And you're looking at it right now, aren't you? It's the people who we live in life with. I, I, I think about this, I, I think about a, a mother who, who is tired, gets up in the middle of the night and changes a dirty diaper. And finally she gets to go back to bed and as she's walking away, there's another mess. That's the time when you need to have a mind set on things above. And how much more earthly can you get than a baby making a mess in a diaper? But you need patience. You need compassion at a time like that. When, when you're sitting down and having a conversation with someone and you take your phone and you set it aside and you look them in the eyes, what you're doing is you're thinking of things above, not unearthly things, 
And again, that's the most mundane sort of a situation we find ourselves in. When you go to the store and you open the door for someone, that's setting your mind on things above and not on earthly things. When your brother or your sister, I'm sure nobody's ever experienced this, but when your brother or your sister takes something of yours, that's a great opportunity to set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. Probably another thing you've never experienced working with a stubborn or an obstinate coworker, who for the upteenth time did that thing again. That's an opportunity to show that your mind is set on things above and not on earthly things. See, this notion of being so heavenly minded that we're of, of no earthly good means that we, like the Gnostics, have completely misunderstood the gospel. The, the gospel is not like a rocket ship that launches us uh, out and away from all these bad, terrible things. It, launch, it engages us deeper in it. When we are gospel people, we are engaged more deeply in this material, physical world. And showing this world compassion and kindness and humility and meekness. So I believe that we cannot set our minds on things above without getting our hands dirty. We cannot be spiritual people without engaging deeply in the material world. See, we believe that Christ deserves every square inch. And we want to be obedient and we want to participate so that Christ may come to have first place in everything. There's not a day of the week that Christ is exempt. There's not a place where you go where Christ is exempt. There's not a relationship that you have where Christ is exempt. But Christ looks at every one of those things and he says, I'm first. I'm first. I'm first. And when Christ becomes first in all that we have, he gets to function as the head of the church. And the church once again becomes the center of the reconciling work of God. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And I want to emphasize this last one because what we are talking about is as we re-engage in the world, God goes with us. We, We take with us the grace of Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit. We don't leave that behind in church and say, that's a church thing. No, this is something that enables us to live in a way that gives Christ first place in everything. If you'd like to uh, receive some prayers this morning, if you want to talk about where you are um, in life, there'll be some folks in the back. We'd be glad to uh, pray with you. But just invite you to come back while we stand and while we sing together.